Greetings from the far side of the wormhole nexus, and welcome to the Vorcast, a podcast about Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkosigan saga. My name is Daniel Galsworth, and I would like to welcome you all back to episode 6, where we'll be continuing going through the second story in the eternal chronological order of the series, Falling Free. We last left our story with our protagonist, Leo Graff, navigating his way through and around the many piles of ominous shit, or OS, that Lois has left all throughout the first chapter. We learn that Leo is an engineer working for Galactech and specializing in non-destructive testing, which was also Lois's father's occupation, but that there is also an element of secrecy about Leo's new assignment, OS. Leo's new boss, Bruce Van Atta, turns out to be a deeply self-interested and dangerously ambitious former student of Leo's, one who has mistaken Leo's past attempt of getting rid of him through, in quotes, promotion as an act of genuine recognition and implicit approval of Venata's behavior and performance as a student, OS. The secret part of Leo's new job turns out to be in the existence of 1,000 genetically modified humanoids, the quadis, with arms instead of legs, as well as other mutations that make them ideal workers for zero-G environments, OS. We learn that the secrecy is necessary because of a general taboo regarding genetic mutation, OS. Ultimately, it is revealed that the quadis are considered the property of Galactic, that Vanetta has recently taken over after the untimely death of Dr. K, the project's former leader and namesake, and has no consideration for the Quadi's rights or welfare beyond what they can do to advance his own career and personal desires, Mega OS. All of this OS is dropped right in front of a bewildered Leo who has been told that his role in the K project will be to teach the Quadi's non-destructive testing as part of their training. We are introduced to four Quadi's, Tony, his mate Claire, their baby Andy, the first quaddy born naturally in quotes, and not from a uterine replicator, and their friend Silver. Lois gives us some not so subtle hints that Van Atta has a sexual relationship with Silver, OS. It's pretty much all bad news for the quaddies from the start, so I'd like to restate the point I made in the last episode that the revelation of the plight of the quaddies is not the point of this story. Almost all of the moral and ethical problems surrounding create a race of, quotes, super workers and the inevitable exploitation and abuse that result are laid out plainly in the first chapter. Lois knows that it would be boring to debate the right of man to play God or some other cliche theme of the genre. It should be very obvious to any reader that the quality situation is very bad and any character that isn't aware or emotionally intelligent enough to figure that out on their own is either being willfully ignorant and therefore villainous or is just too stupid to understand the problem and would therefore be uninteresting and frustrating to read about. And that's what makes Lois so great because her characters aren't willfully ignorant or stupid so they become more realized and three-dimensional through the way each of them rationalizes their own participation in something so obviously wrong and doomed to tragic failure. It's in the midst of this moral struggle that we find Leo Graff at the beginning of chapter 2. Quote, A good night's sleep and free fall had already improved his tone of mind vastly over yesterday after Van Atta's Leo could only dub it disorientation tour. End quote. 
Leo's description of the events in the first chapter as a disorientation tour really sums up its literary function, but it also is another in a string of subtle indications that Leo is not totally on board with the way things are set up at the K Project. However, we still don't know to what degree his reservations will affect his behavior. Will he go along to get along, or will he do what's right? Leo goes to a viewport, and through a televiewer, which is some kind of digital telescope, observes the economy of the planet of Rodeo. We get a little bit of lore about Earth's history, as well as the first mention in the series of a very important piece of future tech. Quote, He adjusted the televiewer for a close-up. A Galactech shuttle was bringing up one of the giant cargo pods, refined petrochemicals or bulk plastics bound for petrochemical-depleted Earth, perhaps. Two or three little manned pushers were already starting to bundle the pods to be locked together and attached to one of the big orbit-breaking thruster units. Once grouped and attached to their thruster, the pod would be aimed towards the distant wormhole exit point that gave access to rodeo local space. Velocity and direction imparted, the thruster would detach and return to rodeo orbit for the next load. The unmanned pod bundle would continue on its slow, cheap way to its target, one in a long train stretching from rodeo to the anomaly in space that was the jump point. Once there, the cargo pods would be captured and decelerated by a similar thruster and positioned for the jump. Then the super jumpers would take over cargo carriers as specially designed as the thrusters for their task. The monster cargo jumpers were hardly more than a pair of Necklin field generator rods in their protective housings so positioned as to be fit around a constellation of pod bundles, a bracketing pair of normal space thruster arms, and a small control chamber for the jump pilot and his neurological headset. Leo grinned and considered the train of wealth gliding through space. No doubt about it, the K-Habitat, Fascinating as it was, was just the tail of the dog to the whole of Galactech's rodeo operations. End quote. So here we get our first description of the Necklin Rod. From the Vorkosigan Saga Concordance, quote, Necklin Field Generator Rod. The system that generates the warp field used for wormhole jumps. The two rods are placed opposite each other on the side of the ship. The rods generate the field that twists the spacecraft through the wormhole, also known as five space. At the end of each rod is a vortex mirror that helps stabilize and guide the field. The rods and their associated vortex mirror are inside a protective hull structure, often as separated cylinders, as an integrated part of the ship's fuselage. End quote. We also get to see that Lois has continued the theme of the neurological integration of future tech with her mention of the jump pilot's neurological headset. Continuing from Falling Free, quote, each jump pilot neurologically wired to his ship to navigate the wavering realities of wormhole space. And later, jumps were more wearing on pilots than Null-G was. The pilots of the fast passenger ships, like the one Leo had ridden in on yesterday, called the super jumper pilots puddle jumpers and merry-go-round riders. The cargo pilots just called the passenger pilots snobs. End quote. Lois's previous description of the procedures for moving cargo to and from a planet and a jump point seems so natural in the context of the story at this point and interesting in a world-building sense that in no way does it seem like she is giving us information that may be important later in the story. I also really appreciate Lois's grasp of the conservation of momentum, 
something anybody writing a story focusing on life in zero-g would need to deeply understand. What is cool and important from an engineering standpoint is how Lois communicates these concepts through their everyday application. She goes out of her way to use the word cheap when describing the transit of the cargo pods from Rodeo's orbit to the jump point because in a friction-free environment like space, an object in motion will stay in motion, meaning that once the cargo pods are accelerated to the desired velocity by the thrusters, they will maintain that speed. Compare this to driving a car. You can get the car up to 65 miles an hour, but as soon as you stop putting energy into that system via the gas pedal, you will start to slow. In fact, in a zero-g vacuum, you will need to add energy to slow down, or technically, you need to accelerate in the opposite direction of travel in order to slow down, thus the existence of the thrusters near the jump point that catch the cargo pods and slow them down. Leo's musings about Galactech's train of wealth are interrupted as Dr. Sandra Yeh enters the viewport area and introduces herself as the head of the psychology and training department. Quote, The woman hovering in the door wore pale green company overalls. Pleasantly ugly, pushing middle age, she had the bright Mongolian eyes, broad nose and lips, and coffee and cream skin of her mixed racial heritage. She pushed herself through the aperture with a concise, relaxed movement of one accustomed to freefall. Offhandedly, Leo suggests to Dr. Ye that the Quadis would be well suited to working on those cargo ships, and Dr. Ye informs him that they have been doing that job already for over a year. Dr. Ye begins to question Leo about his feelings regarding the Quadis, to which Leo says that he has no issues with the Quadis themselves while trying to mask his unease with the situation in general. And then we get our final piece of OS. The first indication of this comes when Dr. Ye describes the Quadis as, quote, quite literally good children, end quote. Her first crime is using the word literally as its antonym, since we already met some Quadis that have had children of their own, and since we've seen many of them working, ideally another activity children don't do. Also, we know Dr. Ye is deeply involved in and even controls aspects of their sexual reproduction. We know that she can't think they are literally children, but poor grammar aside, the fact that she has the quadis framed in such a way in her mind so strongly that she believes it's the literal truth is her second and major crime and it reeks of OS. The smell gets worse as Dr. Ye begins to explain the project's policy of information censorship. Quote, Technical information doesn't concern me. What we've been having a problem with lately is, um, fiction. Leo raised an eyebrow and grinned. Pornography? I'm not sure I'd worry about that. When I was a kid, we passed around, no, 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 not pornography. I'm not sure the Quadis would understand about pornography anyway. Sexuality is an open topic here, part of their social training, biology. I'm far more concerned about fiction that clothes false or dangerous values in attractive colors or biased histories. Leo wrinkled his forehead, increasingly dismayed. Have you taught these kids any history, or let them have stories? Of course we have. The Quadis are well supplied with both. It's simply a matter of the correct emphasis. End quote. Before breaking down this quote, I'd just like to say that I love how Leo was about to go into a personal story about his own pornography use as a teen with his supervisor. For some reason, this strikes me as very funny and endearing. I can imagine him following that topic of conversation could only lead to very awkward territory. 
I know I've definitely been in situations where my internal voice has been shouting to my mouth, stop talking. From this glimpse into Dr. Ye's censorship policies, the final piece of OS is established. So many different nightmare scenarios have come together to create this situation. Genetically engineered superworkers, a secret and incredibly isolated location, total control of all information, and total reproductive control, and of course, sexual abuse. It's interesting that the reveal of this final piece of OS comes in the beginning of the second chapter, when it might have been better to include all of the OS together in the first chapter. From Leo's skin-crawling reaction to the censorship, I think his ambiguity regarding the morality of the K project has started to shift and settle into a quiet reluctance. After their initial meeting, Leo and Dr. Ye make a visit to the creche, which is a French word with a similar meaning to nursery or daycare. Dr. Ye observes Leo with approval as the young five-year-old quaddies gather around him and interact with him. Quote, but at the end of the tour, she studied him with a little smile quirking her mouth. Mr. Graf, you're still disturbed. You sure you're not harboring just a little of the old Frankenstein complex about all this? It's all right to admit it to me. In fact, I want you to talk about it. End quote. Once again, Lois shows her maturity as a writer by explicitly addressing the Frankenstein trope. And even better, she uses the cliché to help tell her own story because Dr. Ye's guess that the thing disturbing Leo is some kind of existential problem with the qualities themselves shows her projecting her own attitude. It's an incredible character development tool. And of course, the qualities' existence isn't what's bothering Leo. It's how they are being treated. Dr. Ye is certainly being painted with a similar villainous brush as Van Atta. But after Leo voices his concern that all this insulation from the outside world might make the Quadis easily victimized, which is exactly what it's doing and what it's for, Dr. Ye does have a semi-redeeming moment when she replies, quote, She took a deep breath and lowered her voice. Her smile had become fixed. Let me set you straight, Mr. Graf. I did not invent the Quadis. I was assigned here six years ago. It's the galactic specs that call for maximum socialization, but I did inherit them, and I care about them. And it's not your job or your business to understand their legal status, but it concerns me greatly. Their safety lies in their socialization. End quote. So let me add galaxy-wide social stigmatization to the OS list. Dr. Ye goes on to further explain the possible complications that would arise if public opinion turned against the K project and the possible dark fate that would mean for the Quadis. Greetings, fellow Vorkies. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can send me an email at thevorecastpodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact me on the Vorecast Instagram page and the Vorecast Reddit page. The Vorecast is available on most podcast platforms and even on YouTube. So go check it out and please like, follow, and subscribe and rate The Vorecast on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Thanks. And always remember, forward momentum. The next section of this chapter is what really brings the story together because we get to see what the qualities are like when they're unobserved. 
It would be easy to make them as simple-minded and oblivious as Dr. Ye or Van Adam might think they are. Then Lois would be treating them the same way as those characters do, like helpless chattel to be either killed or saved by the human characters in the story. But Lois doesn't forget, the way Dr. Ye and Van Adam might have, that the Quaddies might have four arms, but the thing that makes them more practical than a four-limbed robot is their profoundly curious, pattern-seeking, boundary-testing, freedom-yearning human brain. And even though the human brain desires to do all the things I just mentioned and more, it is also capable of simple wonder, as shown in the beginning of the next section, which opens up with the Quaddy Silver, watching one of Dr. Ye's approved entertainment vids called Animals, Animals, Animals. Much to the annoyance of Claire, Silver is repeatedly watching the section on cats. The description in the section is from Silver's perspective, and Lois immediately uses this opportunity to begin to flesh out how a human brain would perceive the world from inside a space-born body. And she does this in her usually extremely skillful, subtle, and imaginative way, through Silver's internal description of one of the cats in the vid. Quote, The creature was crouched, lapping milk from a bowl stuck to its floor by downside gravity. The little white droplets flying off its pink tongue arced back into the dish as though magnetized. End quote. In the same way that Lois integrated the various strange and counterintuitive practicalities of a downsider existing in zero-g into the narrative of her story, so she is able to translate how strange the opposite perspective would be from somebody who had been born in zero-g. The cat on the vid would not be the only thing of novel interest to a quaddy. Lois manages to find the perfect way to convey this profound difference in the basic assumptions about the nature of reality between a quaddy and a downsider when she has Silver perceive the bowl of milk as being stuck to its floor. The sense of strangeness a quaddy must feel looking at downsider life would be similar to a downsider watching a video of a world where people are able to stick bowls of milk to a wall without it spilling. And if you want a more fleshed out vision of the incredible ramifications of simply being able to stick something to a wall, read a Brandon Sanderson novel. And because Lois can't just do one thing at a time, this opening scene not only illustrates the general quaddy perspective on downsider life, but also is a character building moment for Silver, since her fascination with the cat, even beyond that of the typical quaddy from Claire's reaction, gives Silver's character an air of innocence that contrasts sourly with the transactional nature of her and Vanetta's relationship. Silver shares her desire to own a cat to Claire, to which Claire replies with an OS line, quote, Well, maybe they'll let you have a baby soon, end quote. Emphasis on the word let. But Silver doesn't seem as interested in having babies as in owning a cat. We'll see that this difference in personal agenda is not the only conflict which would, of course, exist in any organically formed society of individuals. But in this context, where there has been an attempt to artificially design the quasi society and culture so that they are the perfect self-replicating workforce, Silver's simple desire to have a cat more than a baby shows the deep cracks and flaws in that design. And guess which character specializes in finding cracks and flaws? In this scene, we also see that just as Dr. Ye and Van Atta take it for granted that they are superior to the Quaddies, 
So the Quadis have their own feeling of superiority towards the downsiders. This makes complete sense if you think about it, because in the zero-g environment in which the Quadis have only ever existed, they are superior. And so again, Lois has managed to add an element into her story that makes every line of dialogue that character has have a double meaning. We saw this first in Dreamweaver's Dilemma, most notably during the Chalmus and Kinsey interaction. Now we know that underneath their polite and seemingly submissive exterior, the Quades know how feeble the Downsiders are. Yet even in their individual feelings regarding Downsiders and life on, quote, dirt balls, there are differences. Silver says to Claire, quote, I wonder if I'll ever get a chance to go Downside. Ugh, said Claire. Who'd want to? It looks so uncomfortable. Dangerous, too. Downsiders manage. Besides, everything interesting seems to come from planets. Everyone interesting, too, her thoughts added. She considered Mr. Van Atta's former teacher, Mr. Graff, met on her last working shift yesterday in hydroponics. Yet another legged somebody who got to go places and make things happen. He'd actually been born on Earth, Mr. Van Atta said. End quote. I love how Lois dusts the country girl dreaming of life in the big city trope off and puts it into this sci-fi context. Not only does it create an easily relatable motivation for Silver, but it also comes with an associated feeling of doom, as so many of those farm girl and Hollywood stories have tragic ends. Now, all the hinted at sexual exploitation seems even more inevitable, given the typical story beats of that classic trope. So far in this section, Lois has brilliantly shown the foundational cracks in the mission objectives of the K Project through the failure of Dr. Ye's indoctrination, partially due to Van Atta's thoughtless interference, but also because the Quadis had curious human brains. Lois has also shown that the Quadis are not entirely the meek little worker bees that the project leaders might believe them to be. In fact, they feel like and are superior to humans within their own space-born environment. What Lois does next not only ramps up the tension of the story, but also makes the qualities even more compelling and relatable to the reader. Lois makes them devious. Silver and Claire are soon joined by a new quality character, Siggy. The first sign that something sneaky is going on comes when Siggy sticks his head through the door into the vid viewing room and says, quote, All clear, Silver? All right, come in. Siggy slipped inside. She keyed the door shut again and Siggy turned over, reached into the tool pouch on his belt, Jimmy'd open a wall plate and jammed the door's mechanism. He left the wall plate open in case of urgent need for reaccess, such as Dr. Ye knocking on the door to inquire brightly, What were they doing? Silver by this time had the back cover off the holovid. Siggy reached delicately past her to clip his homemade electronic scrambler across the power lead cables. Anyone monitoring their viewing through it would get static. This is a great idea, said Siggy enthusiastically. Claire looked more doubtful. Are you sure we won't get into a lot of trouble if we're caught? I don't see why, said Silver. Mr. Van Atta disconnects the smoke alarm in his quarters whenever he has a juba joint. I thought downsiders weren't allowed to smoke on board, said Siggy, startled. Mr. Van Atta says it's a privilege of rank, said Silver. I wish I had rank. Has he ever given you one of his jubas? asked Claire in a tone of gruesome fascination. Once, said Silver. 
Wow, said Ziggy, grinning in admiration. What was it like? Silver made a face. Not much. It tasted kind of nasty. Made my eyes red. I really couldn't see the point to it. Maybe downsiders have some biochemical reaction we don't get. I asked Mr. Van Atta, but he just laughed at me. End quote. First off, they are and probably have been hacking their space station. Second, we get a lot of disturbing information about Van Atta, even more than the implied sexual relationship between Silver and him. Not only is Van Atta ignoring safety protocols by dismantling his smoke alarm, he is smoking drugs and giving the drugs to the quaddies. And if Dr. Ye wouldn't already lose her shit if she knew about that, Van Atta is also actively undermining Dr. Ye's censorship of pop culture information by giving Silver uncensored bids. Remember, all the information we're getting is referring to the status quo of the story. This was the situation Leo has walked into. So these revelations still technically count as story setup. I really would like to say that this reveal about Van Atta and all of the implications it would mean about the sanity of a man who could, on one hand, be so outwardly ambitious, and on the other, be so willing to undermine his own success through his own self-interested behavior is the lowest depth of his depravity. But there is still one more stinging revelation to come in the next chapter. Finally, Silver's description of her first drug experience sounds suspiciously similar to many I've heard myself. I wonder if this story was at all autobiographical for Lois. Silver puts on the contrapan vid, and it starts with a scene of horses, which Silver watches with interest. We get some more conversation from the three quaddies that really emphasizes their general feeling of superiority. Quote, Can't you get any more of the Ninja and the Twin Star series, complains Siggy. This is more of your darn dirtball stuff. I want something realistic like that chase scene through the asteroid belt. His hands pursued each other as he made nasal sound effects, indicating machinery undergoing high acceleration. Shut up and look at all the animals, said Silver. So many, and it's not even a zoo. The place is littered with them. Littered is right, giggled Claire. They're not wearing diapers, you know. Think about that. Siggy sniffed. Earth must have been a really disgusting place to live back in the old days. No wonder people grew legs. End quote. Once again, the things that seem strange to downsiders are normalized to the quaddies and vice versa. Whereas the idea of astronauts wearing diapers and the various complexities involved in pooping in zero-g are silly and kind of gross to us, so is the idea of having to exist in the same plane of motion as your own excrement to the quaddies. To us, a farm is realistic to the quaddies flying through an asteroid field is. The final section in this chapter opens with Leo midway through his first lesson on non-destructive testing with the quaddies. For the first time, we get to see Leo in charge and in his comfort zone, another excellent character-building strategy from Lois. Also, knowing that Leo is essentially teaching the same course to the quaddies as Lois's father did to human engineering students, I wonder how much of the technical lecture Leo gives comes from Lois's father's own lecture notes. What I find most noteworthy about this section is that it is almost entirely densely packed technical jargon, yet it holds my interest over many pages, even before the element of intrigue is revealed towards the end of the lecture. It's really hard to explain how Lois has managed to make page after page of sentences like, quote, 
At no point do more than two porosities appear in a cross-section, and at all points the voids occupy less than 5% of the section. Also, spherical cavities like these are the least damaging of all potential shapes of discontinuities, the least likely to propagate cracks in service. A non-critical defect is called a discontinuity. Or, when I add that, this weld was in a fairly low pressure liquid storage tank and not, for example, in a thruster propulsion chamber with its massively greater stresses, the slipperiness of this definition becomes clearer. Or, these two porosities plus this lamination all in this same plane. You can see the fatal crack started to propagate already on this rotation. End quote. It goes page after page like that. When reading this section, I followed the lecture as closely as the quaddies because I have a personal interest in this kind of thing as an engineer myself. But what would make this section interesting for most other people? For a while, I had a hard time figuring it out, but I think I found an answer. What is Lois doing in this section? She's showing Leo in his comfort zone for the first time in the story, as I've mentioned, character building for Leo. She shows interactions between Leo and the Quaddies in his class, great relationship building and bonding moments between Leo and the Quaddies. I forgot to mention this already, but Dr. Ye is also in the class observing Leo, so we get the tension between the slightly anti-galactic tones of Leo's lecture and Dr. Ye's stated intention of towing the company line in the name of the Quaddies' long-term safety. Again, a great relationship-building moment between Leo and Dr. Ye, but in a more confrontational and adversarial direction. But what really makes this section work is some kind of magic that Lois can summon by combining these elements and others to create a simply and utterly charming and pleasurable reading experience. For example, as Leo is lecturing, he asks the Quaddies to gather around the holographic viewer, a pretty routine request for a teacher. But given the demands of zero-g, we get some really classic boujold moments written in Lois's once again utterly charming description. Quote, the Quaddies arrange themselves around the display in a spherical shell of attentiveness, automatically extending helping hands to neighbors to absorb and trade momentum so that all achieved a tolerable hover. End quote. I mean, how can you not love the phrase spherical shell of attentiveness? And besides that, Lois's efficiency of description is incredible. The complex series of movements the Quadis must perform to form the equally complex shape made of interconnected bodies is so clear in my mind's eye, yet Lois communicated this scene of 3D gymnastics with only the single sentence I just quoted. And not only does the sentence describe the behavior, but it tells a story of how intuitively the Quadis work together, projecting a sense of unity and harmony that contrasts perfectly with the two human characters in the room, as well as the story of the lecture itself. Observe the plans within plans within plans, as Baron Harkonnen would say. The lecture continues as various microscopic images of welds are displayed to the quaddies. Leo asks the class a question and, quote, he almost added, raise your hand before realizing what a particularly unintelligible directive that was here. Several of the red-clad students solved the dilemma for him by crossing their upper arms formally across their chest instead. Looking properly hesitant, Leo nodded towards Tony, end quote. Such attention to detail from Lois. Just the amount of creativity on display here. 
The lecture goes on for a few pages as Leo shows the quadis two separate scans of the same weld in order to make the point that some flaws show up on one type of scan but not on the other. Pretty bland stuff on the surface, but Lois makes it great. The next part of the lecture deals with a slightly more intriguing topic and it is also the part of this section that has the most influence on the plot. Additionally, it may also be a section that closely resembles something Lois's father may have taught since he was very involved in thinking about the larger ethical implications of non-destructive testing. I read through a tribute to Robert Charles McMaster in the last episode, so refer back to that or read it on didarii.com if you would like to know more about the Robert McMaster-Leo-Graph connection. Leo brings up another image to the class, this time of a document. Quote, that, he pointed for emphasis, his voice growing heavy with scorn, is a falsified inspection record. Worse, it's one of a series. A certain subcontractor of Galactic supplying thruster propulsion chambers for jump ships found its profit margin endangered by a high volume of its work being rejected after it had been in placed into the system. So instead of tearing the work apart and doing it over right, they chose to lean on the quality control inspectors. We will never know for certain if the chief inspector refused a bribe or not, because he wasn't around to tell us. He was found accidentally very dead due to an apparent power suit malfunction attributed to his own errors made when attempting to don it while drunk. The autopsy found a high percent of alcohol in his bloodstream. It was only much later that it was pointed out that the percent was so high he oughtn't to have been able to walk, let alone suit up. End quote. Lois is juggling a few different balls in this quote as usual. First, it's an interesting story on its own. The story ends with Leo discovering the fraud himself and reporting it. Considering the suspicion of foul play in the death of one of the possible co-conspirators, it says a lot about Leo's own strength of character and bravery that he would not only speak out at the time, but also use this event as part of his standard curriculum. Also, the tone of the story is not exactly pro-Kalactech and it includes description of behavior that would be considered as antisocial by the watching Dr. Ye. Besides all that, I get the impression that he likely pissed off some powerful people at Galactic Management. The real takeaway from this story is that Leo has an ethical line and he is not afraid to make enemies when people cross it. Leo sums up the lecture on a similar note. Quote, A human mind is the ultimate testing device. You can take all the notes you want on the technical data. Anything you forget, you can look up again. But this must be engraved on your hearts in letters of fire. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more important to me in the men and women I train than their absolute personal integrity. Whether you function as a welder or inspector, the laws of physics are implacable lie detectors. You may fool men, You'll never fool the metal. That's all. End quote. You may fool men. You will never fool the metal. Classic Bujold, or maybe even pre-classic Bujold, if that line was a quote from her father. Leo looks up after this heartfelt conclusion to see that the Quadis were not only taking his words seriously. Quote, in fact, they were looking rather shocked, staring at him with terrified awe. End quote. Here, you can really see all the solid story foundation work Lois has done so far really paying off. 
Because we now have insight into the motivations and expectations of all the important characters in the scene, with one sentence, Lois can summon a sense of tension and conflict because we can predict how the characters might each react. We now know enough about Leo to imagine the emotional shift from intense righteous passion regarding professional integrity to concern over possibly frightening the Quaddies, mixed with worry over Dr. Ye's reaction to what was obviously a very stimulating story to the Quaddies. Also, what an internal conflict Leo must be feeling when he is at the same time lecturing on integrity while also participating in systematic oppression. Sure enough, once the class ends and the Quaddies are making their way out of the classroom, Leo notices Dr. Ye waiting for him by the doorway. Dr. Ye starts out by making the same observation I did about how seeing Leo in his element brought out his personality. She mistakes Leo's formerly quiet demeanor as just being due to a strong but silent nature, rather than coming from the deep sense of unease Leo feels about the K project. We also see that Leo may not be as willing to comply with Dr. Ye's restrictions at least when it comes to his occupation. Quote, Your fraud story had great impact. They've never heard anything like it. Indeed, I've never heard about that one. It was years ago. Really quite disturbing all the same. Her face bore a look of introspection. I hope not overly so. Well, I hope it's very disturbing. It's a true story. I was there. He eyed her. Someday, they may be there, criminally negligent if I fail to prepare them. End quote. And with that, we come to the end of Chapter 2 of Falling Free. We began with the final piece of OS being deposited as Dr. Ye informed Leo of her policy of censorship and propaganda. We got our first glimpse into the private society of the Quadis, in which we see that Dr. Ye's policies have long been undermined, indicating that the Quadis possess the ability to be devious since they must maintain the appearance of ignorance about certain topics or ideologies. We hear that the Quadis have a semi-justified sense of superiority over the downsiders and that even this opinion is not entirely shared among them since Silver at least has developed a romanticized notion of downsider life. We also find out that it has been Van Atta himself who has supplied the forbidden media and even drugs to Silver in an implied exchange for sex. Finally, we got to see Leo on solid ground, confident and in control of his classroom at least. A warning here, in the next chapter, we are going to get into some adult content, so proceed with caution. However, if you're already a fan of Lois, you'll know that her work exploring the darker side of humanity is often her best. So please join me again as we watch the dominoes begin to fall free in Chapter 3 of Falling Free on the next episode of The Vorecast.